How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. What happens when the decentralization of the Internet collides with a highly centralized energy system? Innovation is unleashed and energy consumers become energy producers by putting solar panels on their roofs or wind turbines on their farms. That kind of creative destruction is happening all around us as the monopolies of electric utilities are being challenged by their own customers as well as startup companies intent on using new technology to disrupt the status quo. Jeremy Rifkin is a noted author and lecturer at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, says the convergence of communication technology and energy regimes will usher in a new era of prosperity based on distributed power. Importantly, that transformation will move the world away from fossil fuels. Mr. Rifkin's new book is entitled The Third Industrial Revolution, How Lateral Power is Transforming Energy, the Economy, and the World. He's here to share his insights on the energy revolution now underway and to take questions from our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Please welcome Jeremy Rifkin. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you here in San Francisco. I'm going to start on a somber note. I hope it'll end up being a liberating reflection. We've had two significant events in the last three years, which I believe signal the long, torturous, and dangerous endgame for the Industrial Revolution based on fossil fuels. The first event was July 2008. You recall that month. Oil hit $147 a barrel on world markets, and the prices for everything on the supply chain went through the roof, from food to petrol. Purchasing power plummeted all over the world that month. And the entire economic engine of the Industrial Revolution shut down. What I want to suggest to you is that that was the great economic earthquake. The collapse of the financial market 60 days later was the aftershock. Our world leaders are still dealing with the aftershock and haven't gone to the nub of the crisis. We have hit peak globalization. At least in the business community, we now know the outer limits of how far we can globalize this economy based on fossil fuels. It's about $150 a barrel, and it'll continue to shut down. We're in an end game. The reason this is happening is the whole world's made out of, moved by fossil fuels. We grow our food in petrochemical fertilizers and pesticides. All of our construction materials are fossil fuel-based. Almost all of our pharmaceutical products are still fossil fuel-based. Our synthetic fiber, our power, our transport, our heat and light, they're all based on fossil fuels. So in 2007, oil started going over $80 a barrel. We saw something interesting. All the prices for everything else went up on the supply chain. At $100 a barrel, the financial markets came in to, to game the market and speculate. At $120 a barrel, we had food riots in 22 countries. Because 40% of the human race lives under $2 a day, 
and they saw their price for rice, wheat, barley, and rye doubling and trebling. The UN was worried and said, we have a billion people now facing potential hunger and starvation. At 147, it shut down. Why are we here on this end game? Because we've reached peak oil per capita and global peak oil production, both. Peak oil per capita occurred in 1979 at the height of the auto age in the second industrial revolution. Had we distributed all the oil, crude oil, that we had at that point to everyone alive on the planet at that time, that's the most each person could have if we shared it. We found more oil since then, but population rose quicker. So if we shared all the crude oil we have now with 6.8 billion people, there's just less to go around. It gets more, it gets worse. The International Energy Agency is the lead organization in the world in which the entire energy industry relies for its statistics. So they're the formidable voice, the authoritarian last word. I should say authoritative last word, hopefully not authoritarian. The IEA issued its long-awaited uh, projection report on energy 2011 last December, and the IEA now says that it's likely that the world peaked on crude oil production in 2006. We may have put this controversy to rest. We peaked at probably 70 million barrels of crude oil a day. It'll plateau down to 69 million barrels a day from here on in. But listen to this, at a cost of $7 trillion to get the remaining crude oil out. So what I'm suggesting here is that every time we try to regrow the economy at the same growth rate we were growing before July 2008, price of oil goes up, all the other prices go up, purchasing power goes down, and it collapses. Why is this happening? China and India brought in a third of the human race into the game at an 8, 10, 12, 14% growth rate in the last decade, and the, the demand pressure against the supply was so great that we couldn't hold. What I'm saying is this. This is a wall we can't go beyond. In 2009, the economy stopped dead, so oil went down to 30 a barrel, nothing moving. In 2010, we began replenish inventories and started to try to turn on the engine again. And what happened? Oil immediately shot up to $100 a barrel. It's 106 for Brent crude oil today, and what's going on? All the other prices are going up for everything else, from food to petrol and purchasing power sliding, and we're going into a second global collapse. Be clear. What I'm suggesting here is that we're in this wild gyration of four-year cycles where we're going to try to regrow, collapse, regrow, collapse. And I've asked my colleagues, if I'm wrong, tell me how you're going to get through that wall of 147 a barrel with the whole developing world now in the game. It's a dangerous period. It's going to roll out over the next 30 years. This is an end game. The second major event of the last three years, Copenhagen, December 2009, World leaders from 192 countries come together to deal with the entropy bill for the industrial age. Any engineers here? Engineers? Well, you know you cannot escape the second law of thermodynamics. This is not a metaphor. We are paying the entropy bill. We've spewed massive carbon dioxide into the atmosphere to propel the first and second industrial revolutions. And now we have so much CO2 and methane and nitrous oxide industrial induced in that atmosphere that it's blocking the sun's heat from getting off the planet. It's as simple and complex as that. How bad is it? The UN panel on climate change says a three degree Celsius rise in temperature in this century is now likely, and now that's looking optimistic that we can hold it at that. 
But to put this in perspective, if we go up three degrees in this century, it takes us back to the temperature on Earth three million years ago in the Pliocene. It's all about the water cycle. For every one degree Celsius that the temperature on this Earth rises, the atmosphere absorbs 7% more precipitation from the ground. That means more floods, more droughts, more wildfires, and our ecosystems cannot adjust to a dramatic shift in the water cycles in a short moment of evolutionary history. So whole ecosystems die out. The tree canopies, the animal life within those canopies, on and on. So our scientists in the UN panel say that we may be on the cusp right now, the beginning of a sixth extinction event on Earth. We've had five extinction events in 450 million years in the geological record. Every time we've had an extinction, and it comes quick, it took 10 million years to recover the biodiversity we lost. And now our scientists' models show that we could lose upwards of 70% of all the life on this planet, all the species, by the end of this century. The century where young little babies are still going to be here as old adults. As my wife says, we're not grasping the enormity of this moment. We are sleepwalking. So what do we do? We've hit peak globalization at 147 a barrel. There's other fossil fuels. We could go to tar sands from Canada. They want to put that pipeline down into the United States. We could go to heavy oil from Venezuela. There's plenty of coal. There's shale gas. That's more CO2. We're stuck. So we had peak globalization, July 2008. Now we've got real-time climate change impacting agricultural yields and infrastructure damage around the world. And we have to ask the question, where do we go from here? We need a new economic vision for the world. We need a new economic plan for the world. It has to be compelling, comprehensive, pragmatic. We have to be able to deliver on it in less than 40 years. It has to move as quickly or more quickly in the developing world than the developed world. It has to get us post-carbon in 30 years from now. So we want to step back and ask the question, how do the great economic revolutions in history occur? Because if we have, we know this, we can get a little roadmap of where we need to go. The great economic revolutions in history occur when two things happen. First, when we change the way we organize energy. And we have had many different energy regimes in our short-lived history as a species. We, and by the way, we've only been here 175,000 years. Anatomically modern humans, we are the babies. We are the youngest species that we know of on this planet. When we change energy regimes, the new energy regimes make possible much more complex civilizations because that energy flow allows us to annihilate time and space, bring more people together in larger social arrangements, differentiate labor skills, integrate people into more complex commercial and social units. So when these new energy regimes create the possibility of more complex civilizations, they require a communication revolution to manage them. When energy revolutions converge with communication revolutions, it changes history. 19th century, print technology became very cheap. We introduced steam power into printing, linotype and rotary technology. So we could mass produce cheap print. And then we introduced public schools in Europe and America. We created a print literate workforce with the communication skills to manage the coal, steam power, rail infrastructure, first industrial revolution. We could not have done it with an illiterate workforce. 
20th century, another convergence of communication energy, centralized electricity, the telegraph and telephone, then later radio and television, became the communication medium to manage a more dispersed oil, auto, mass consumer culture stretched out across suburban corridors around the states. That second industrial revolution now is clearly on life support. The energies are sunsetting. All fossil fuels are getting more expensive. They're never going to get cheaper. The technologies based on those energies, like the internal combustion engine, have exhausted their S-curve. And this whole infrastructure of civilization, it's all made out of carbon. We are on the cusp of a new communication energy convergence, a third industrial revolution that might get us to biosphere consciousness in time to address the enormity of this crisis that our species faces, that is our survival and the survival of our fellow creatures. We had a powerful communication revolution in the last 20 years, the Internet. Now, the Internet's very interesting because it's so different than the kind of centralized electricity I grew up on. Radio, television, we're centralized, top-down communications. The Internet is distinguished as a communication medium because it's distributed, it's collaborative, and it scales laterally, side by side. This powerful Internet communication revolution has just begun to merge and converge in Europe with a new energy regime, distributed energy. And when distributed Internet communications manages distributed energy, we have a powerful third industrial revolution. We democratize energy. This is power to the people. This will fundamentally change not only the economy, but the political and social landscape of every community in the world. What are distributed energies? Let's distinguish them from the energies we're familiar with, elite energies, coal, oil, gas, uranium. They're elite for the simple reason, go home today, look in your backyard, and I'll bet you don't have any of those energies back there. They're only found in a few places. They require huge military investments to secure them, huge geopolitical investments to manage them, and massive infusions of capital to organize them, and they scale top-down because... These elite energies require so much management and so much finance capital that they favor the scaling of large centralized production, large centralized distribution, and logistics. Be clear that the second industrial revolution and the first industrial revolution before it are the most centralized, top-down energy regimes in all of history. Distributed energies, what are they? Those are energies that are found in every square inch of the world in some frequency or proportion. The sun shines everywhere in the world every day. The wind blows all across this planet every day. Everywhere we walk, there's a hot geothermal core of heat under the ground. Wherever there's garbage, it can be anaerobically decomposed back into energy. In the rural areas, we have agricultural and forestry waste that can be converted to energy. In the coastal areas where our big urban populations live, those ocean waves and tides are coming in every day for energy. We have enough renewable distributed energy to bathe this planet for our species and our fellow creatures until kingdom comes. The European Union has committed itself to a five-pillar infrastructure plan to usher in a powerful third industrial revolution, a post-carbon world that shifts us to geopolitics to biosphere politics. I was privileged to develop the plan. It was endorsed formally by the European Parliament in June 2007. It's working its way through the agencies and commissions of the EU. I was just with the Chancellor of Germany on September 20th, 
She had me come into Berlin where we laid this out for Germany, and Germany is leading this. One of the two great exporting powers in the world, along with China, the economic engine of Europe, and certainly the envy of the business community here. This is not academic. What I'm laying out is actually what we're doing now on the ground in the last three years, most of it in the last 24 months. Pillar one, the European Union is committed to 20% renewable energy by 2020. That's a third of the electricity in Europe has to be green, nine years left. Not a suggestion. This is a mandate. Every country, every community has to get to this target. By the way, Germany got to the target a month ago. 20% renewable energy and green electricity. Right now, they're heading to 35% by 2020. Pillar two, how do we collect distributed renewable energies? Our first thought was, well, that's interesting. Go to the Mediterranean, a lot of sun. Grab it, put it in a high voltage line and ship it out. The Irish have the wind, the Norwegians have the hydro, centralize it, ship it. We don't oppose these larger concentrated solar, wind, geothermal, and some hydro parks. They're essential, not sufficient. They get us post-carbon, but they're a small part of this third industrial revolution. They're 20th century thinking. Because if renewable energies are found literally in every square inch of the world, why in heaven's name are we only collecting them in a few central points? We were thinking 20th century based on fossil fuels and uranium. So pillar two, buildings. We have 191 million buildings in the European Union, and buildings are the number one use of energy, the number one cause of climate change. Parenthetically, I always mention this because not a single world leader has ever has raised this, the number two cause of climate change, as some of you know, is beef production and consumption and related animal husbandry, and even Al Gore won't speak up on it. How serious are we here? Number three is worldwide transport. Number one, buildings. We have 191 million buildings in the EU, homes, offices, and factories, and here's the mission, to convert every single building in Europe to a green micro-power plant in the next 40 years. So it can collect sun on the roof, wind off the sidewalls, geothermal heat under the ground, the works. And the new buildings, already up, positive power. We have a building by the French construction company, Bouygues, it was just finished two months ago in the Paris suburbs. It's a huge complex. It's drop-dead gorgeous. And the architecture is so sophisticated, it creates enough energy not only for its own needs, but can send positive power back to the grid. And there's more coming up this year. Pillar 2 jumpstarts construction. This moves the European economy. It's going to require millions and millions and millions of jobs and thousands and thousands of small and medium-sized enterprises to convert the entire building stock of Europe. We have to put in the efficiencies first, retrofit them, get them tight, then we have to convert them. That's 40 years of on-job, on-site, local employment and construction business. Pillar three, tough one, we have to find storage. The sun isn't always shining. The wind isn't always blowing or sometimes it blows at night. You need the electricity during the day. Water tables can be down for hydroelectricity when there's climate-induced drought. These are intermittent energies. So we have to find a way to store them. In the EU, we're for all storage, batteries, flywheels, capacitors, water pumping, use them all. We have, however, concentrated our central, our major efforts on hydrogen. Basic element of the universe, the lightest element in existence, it carries other energies, and it's modular. So you can use it in a teeny house or in a huge utility company for storage. The European Union's committed 8 billion euros last year to deployment of hydrogen infrastructure across Europe. 
It's doing, they're doing that now. Pillar four is where the communication revolution, the internet, converges with the new distributed energies to create a nervous system for this new infrastructure. We use off-the-shelf internet technology and we convert the transmission, the power lines, the electricity grid of Europe to an energy internet. It acts exactly like the internet. So when millions and millions of buildings are collecting that green energy on site, storing it in hydrogen like you store media in digital, then if you don't need some of that electricity at any given time of the day, you can program your software, send it back to the grid, and share your electricity from the Irish Sea to the doorsteps of Russia, just like you now create your own information online and share it with everybody else across virtual space. Pillar 5, electric plug-in transport and logistics. The... Electric cars here this year. Hydrogen fuel cell cars are going into mass production in 2014. This is a done deal. Daimler, General Motors, Toyota, they're moving into mass production with infrastructure. You'll be able to plug in your car, bus, truck, or train anywhere in the infrastructure, get green electricity. And then anywhere across the entire landscape, you can plug back into chargers and either get green electricity from the grid or if the software tells you to sell back because the price is good, you sell your electricity back to the grid. These five pillars together are the new technology. And here I am in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, the hub of new tech companies. Here's my message. The five pillars alone are simply components. It's when you put the five pillars together, you create the synergies. And it's that infrastructure, that mega technology, which allows us to have a completely new economic paradigm where we go from vertical to lateral scaling and we go from giant handful of giant companies running the world to lots of small and medium-sized enterprises and very, very big networks working alongside global companies. This is power to the people. This is the democratization of energy. Let me caution that if you do the pillars alone, you lose. And this is where President Obama lost the opportunity. He really wanted a green economy. I believe he really was sincere. And he put billions and billions of dollars into projects. The problem is the projects were isolated, siloed. They stood alone. They didn't connect up, and he lost the money. Uh, so he would have a battery factory over here and a solar factory over there and a little bit of smart meters in the grid. He never could tell the story. The story is the five pillars together, the coming together of energy communication to create a new nervous system for a new world. We started to make this mistake in the EU. Even though we had the story... One pillar started to get a hold ahead of the other pillars in various communities, and our industries and our communities started to realize we were losing money. I'll give you an example. The EU Commission leaked a document last fall saying, uh-oh, we need one trillion euros for the energy Internet now, in the next 10 years. Why? Europe put in feed-in tariffs across every country. Your electricity price goes up just a tiny bit. You don't even recognize it that allows early adopters to then get solar, wind, geothermal and put it on their infrastructure and then get premium price for selling their energy back to the grid. Guess what? Thousands and thousands and thousands now of energy entrepreneurs have that energy. They're trying to feed it back into the power grid, but the power grid is servo-mechanical, 60 years old, falling apart, leaking electricity. It can't take the energy. Some of the utilities don't even want the energy. Then we realized, uh uh-oh, some of our regions are so successful from the feed-in tariffs that we've got 20, 30, 40 percent of the electricity is green now. And we're losing three out of four kilowatts. 
because sometimes the electricity, the wind's blowing at night. We need it during the day. The sun's not always out. So we're losing three out of four kilowatts. So we have to put in hydrogen to store this or we're going to lose a lot of the energy that we paid for. Then we realized we didn't incentivize the small homeowners and the small businesses. The big companies in my group, they do the big solar parks, the big wind parks, and they get that feed-in tariff. But what about the little homeowner that needs to put 30,000 euros a photovoltaic power plant on their roof? How do they pay for it? They pay for their increase in their electricity bill. What do they get? We now realize we got to incentivize green loans. So now in Germany and Italy, banks have come together. And in Italy, this is amazing, which is pretty bureaucratic. You have a home. You want 30,000-euro photovoltaic power plant on your roof. You sign a little uh, loan note. Sixty days later, the national banks give you a $30,000 loan and the actual power plant's on your roof in 60 days. Why do they do this? The banks give you a green loan that's a lower discount rate because they check their electricity bills. And they see what you're going to save on your electricity bills and know you're going to pay it back. It's called pay as you save. And then we realize if we don't have all these other four pillars moving in at the same speed, how do we plug in our electric vehicles and fuel cell vehicles? There'll be a lost proposition. Again, it's the five pillars together that create the synergies. It's a mega technology. It's a nervous system. It's an infrastructure for a new era. For 30 years, governments have said to me, Mr. Rifkin, come on. How are you going to run the world on solar roofs and garbage and windmills? Let's get serious here. I mean, they have a place. The kids like them. They're benign. They don't emit CO2. But it's soft energy, as Amory Lovins would say. It's soft. You've got to have hard energy, coal, oil, gas, uranium, to run a strong, robust global economy. You've heard this argument. And frankly, we couldn't actually answer this argument for 30 years because we didn't know how to aggregate this distributed energy. We now know how. It came here in Silicon Valley. We've had it for 15 years. A couple of young researchers wanted to find a way to monitor the universe to see if there's any intelligent life on there, which is kind of strange. We're killing off all the intelligent, caring life here, but we're so interested in finding it somewhere else. Somebody has to clue me in on what that's about. But they realized that even with advanced, super-centralized supercomputers, they couldn't monitor the universe. So the couple of young guys fixed on an idea of connecting hundreds of thousands and millions of little teeny desktop computers, connect them with software. When they connect them, the distributed computing power dwarfs centralized supercomputers. And now grid IT is the cutting edge of the IT industry, and we can now take it to the power lines. When millions and millions and millions of buildings are producing their own green electricity on site, storing it in hydrogen like you store digital in media, then with grid IT, we can share it in a distributed fashion and collaborative across continents, and the energy we create dwarfs these little teeny centralized 20th century nuclear and coal-fired power plants, but this energy is sustainable, it's post-carbon, and it moves with the rhythms of the earth. Power to the people. The third industrial revolution is interesting to me because the old guard has no clue. This is a real generational shift. I saw this with the music companies. The music companies did not understand file sharing and music. Apparently, millions of kids around the world have nothing else to do after school but find new interesting ways of using software to get the music free. The music companies thought it was a joke. Then they tried to legislate it. I see a few guilty young people smiling here. They had to legislate it, and then they went out of business in five years. The newspapers did not understand the blogosphere. 
people in a distributed, collaborative fashion sharing information with each other, mostly free. Now newspapers are going out of business or they're setting up blogs. And Encyclopedia Britannica could not imagine Wikipedia. Millions of people recreating the knowledge of the world freely in open commons and checking each other's accuracy on the sites. Now it's the sixth largest website in the world. So when distributed collaborative communication technology embedded in the Internet start to manage distributed energy, it's a thousand times more powerful. It actually changes power literally and figuratively, the economic power, the political power, the cultural power of society. Lateral power sounds like an oxymoron, but it is not. We're so used to thinking of pyramidal power top down. Lateral power is side by side. For an Internet generation that grew up empowered with the idea of producing their own information, sharing it online, this is the next stage. Now combining with energy and sharing it on all across continents to give us a third industrial revolution and hopefully biosphere consciousness. The biosphere is that thin sheath that goes from the stratosphere to the ocean depths in which all geochemical processes and living processes interact to maintain the stability of life on this planet. The third industrial revolution favors biosphere consciousness because when each of us are responsible for the energy flows where we live, it means we constantly have to get in touch now with the ecosystem dynamics of the planet. With coal, oil, gas, and uranium, hard chunk of sun, we never thought about the rhythms. We divorced ourselves from the seasonal changes. But now, with the third industrial revolution, we have to monitor the rhythms of this changing seasons in this planet every day. The sun, the wind currents, the heat under the ground, how the garbage is moving back into energy, the ocean tides. So as we become responsible for our node and we're completely become embedded in the rhythms of the, of the earth, but then we have to connect up with every other node and collaborate across continents, we start to become aware in a very visceral way that we're as interconnected in the ecosystem dynamics of the biosphere as we're connected on the social spaces on the Internet. Unless people think this is academic, go into any school in California or any school in Europe or any school even in South America and parts of Asia, and what are the kids learning? They're learning biosphere consciousness all in five years. They come home and they say to mom and dad, why is the electricity on in this room when we don't need it? How come our car is using so much gasoline? Where did the hamburger come from on my table? Who did it affect? And where did my clothes come from? What our children are learning is that every single thing that they engage in has an ecological footprint, right, that affects some other human being, some other family, some other creature, somewhere else on Earth. They're learning systemic thinking. And it's actually been done informally, which is quite interesting because we're so immersed in reductionist thinking since the beginning of the Enlightenment. But now the kids are learning systemically. They, they ask, where did the hamburger come from? Rainforest in Central America? Did they have to raise those tree canopies to graze the cattle? How many species of animal life were lost when the tree canopy was destroyed? And now without the trees there to absorb the CO2, does this raise the temperature on the planet? And if that happens, does that change the water cycle in some other part of the earth so that there's more floods and droughts and we lose the yield of agricultural food production and some family starves? That's systemic thinking. The third industrial revolution likes to run uninhibited across land masses till it reaches ocean edges, just like information likes to run free on the Internet. So the way it's going to come in is notably, as each city in each region begins to phase in these five pillars, 
bringing together industry, government, and the non-governmental organizations, civil society groups. As you start to phase in in each region, there's the automatic desire to then connect to the next node to share the energy, and then the next node, and the next node. It's coming in like Wi-Fi. My global team has done a number of these master plans. We have 120 companies, architectural firms, IT companies. Uh, and what we did is we did San Antonio, the seventh largest U.S. city for the city. We just finished Rome, an 18 billion euro rollout. We just finished Monaco for Prince Albert, the Netherlands, Utrecht. And we're beginning to see how cities will come together in regions to create these nodes and then start to connect with each other. This is lateral power. Last thoughts on this. This is going to change the business models. You have a lot of large utilities here in California. When we introduced this model in Europe, some of the utility companies weren't happy. Of course, the energy companies really weren't happy, still aren't. But the utility companies said, wait a minute, this doesn't sound right to us. We like to control the supply of power. We like to control the transmission lines, the distribution. We like to sell a lot of electrons. Are you people out of your mind? Why would we buy this? We've broken through that in Europe because we provided a different and new business model that's better. Started with NTR in Ireland and then Scottish Power, EMBW Germany. Here's the new business model. We said to the utility companies, get used to it. Millions and millions and millions of people are going to provide and create their own energy. Just like we went from centralized communication and then people created their own information. And just like the uh, computer, the Internet, and cell phones, remember they were very expensive. They became so cheap in 20 years that they almost give them away, the cell phones, and you buy the service. This is what's starting to happen with the renewable energy technologies, the photovoltaics and the wind and the geothermal heat pumps, et cetera, the biomass converters. They're going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and they're going to follow the same curve 20 years. And as they get cheaper, more early adoption, more scale, and eventually they're going to be so cheap they can give them away. And the sun is free once you have the technology to grab it. The wind is free once you have the technology to get it. The heat under your ground is free once you have the technology on site. So we're going to produce the energy. And our producer and consumer co-ops will collectively share. And then we'll sell it back to the grid. The power and utility companies will run the grid, the energy Internet. That's a technical expertise. How will they make money? in a completely counterintuitive way to the way they make it now. They're going to make money by selling as few electrons as they can. How does that happen? We use the IBM case study. This is a famous case study that's it's almost a cliche. It's used in every MBA course in the world. In 1990s, IBM was in trouble. Remember they sold that IBM physical computer? But they realized their computer could not really compete effectively because everyone else had the same computer, and it was cheaper in China and India, and there was no margins in selling a physical computer, so they had to say, what do we do? So IBM had a soul-searching discussion, and Lou Gerstner, the CEO, asked this question. What do we really do that people need? What's our real expertise at IBM? And they came up with the idea, it's managing information, not selling physical computers. And now they manage information flows, and Hewlett-Packard manages information flows, and Cisco manages information flows, and every company in the world has a chief information officer. The new mission of the power and utility companies is to manage the energy flows, because that's their expertise, and to work with thousands and thousands of small, medium, and large-sized clients to manage their energy flows across the supply chain, embedded in their products and in the processes and in the logistics, and to the extent that any company survives in the next 30 years, here's how they're going to survive. 
in this volatile period, as we transition out of the second industrial revolution with all of the disruptions and into a third industrial revolution scaling laterally, whether any company survives or sinks will depend not on their labor costs, but on their energy costs, their margins. To the extent power and utility companies can work with clients to manage their energy flows, increase their thermodynamic efficiencies, reduce their energy costs, increase their productivity, they survive. And you know how they will make money? Their clients will then share back their savings and their productivity gains with the utility companies. Far more money to be made there and selling less electrons. And if the utility companies don't adapt, I'm telling you this afternoon, other companies are already moving into the business. And there's going to be thousands of startup companies. And you're going to see cities begin to take over their utilities and publicly own them again. And communities. It's already starting. This is a revolution. California is closer to the sensibilities of Europe. It's the flagship for the United States. There's been tremendous development during the Gray Davis and the Schwarzenegger administration. Now we have Jerry Brown in there. And my message is this. In this period of austerity, the worst thing that we can do is just have austerity and no growth plan. Yes, there's going to be cuts. But as we say in Europe, there's places where we can cut waste. But we have to be mindful. We have to make sure we maintain the social market model balance. We need to make sure nobody falls behind. We need to make sure we maintain and preserve the quality of life, and we'll still make cuts. But if it's just austerity, we can't grow the economy again because the second industrial revolution is on life support. So what every state has to do in the United States is begin to ask the question, where do you want to be in 20 years from now? Do you want to be in the sunset energies, technologies, and infrastructure of a second industrial revolution that's dying? No possibility of new growth and employment and jobs and business opportunity? Or do you want to be in the sunrise energies, the sunrise technologies, and infrastructure of an emergent third industrial revolution that can get us post-carbon, address climate change, and give us a future not just for our species but our fellow creatures on this planet? I think the answer to this question is clear. As my wife says, this five-pillar infrastructure took us 20 years to get to this, and she said, my God, it's so pragmatically obvious. The obvious takes a while. We know we have to go to renewable energies, one. We know we have to collect them. They're everywhere. Collect them where there are buildings and infrastructure. Two. Three. We know we have to store the energies because they're intermittent, so put in every storage technology we can, including hydrogen. Four. We know we have to share the energies because when millions of players are just doing little bits themselves, you have to share the load in order to run a whole global economy. And five. We have to plug it into our logistics and transport. It's not enough, though, just to have a good plan. Unless we can create biosphere consciousness and move from geopolitics to biosphere politics quickly, the best plans in the world will not happen. It is more than just technology and economic planning. It requires a change in consciousness. California is in an ideal position to lead the country. That consciousness is here. You've already got a track record. Some of your targets are already closing in on the European Union. And now it's up to California now to bring its best talent together. And my message to Silicon Valley, especially here, is what happened to the American imagination? We always talk about Silicon Valley and Madison Avenue, Hollywood, telling a good story, creating a vision so powerful that Americans will rush in and risk everything to get to the new future. we got to recapture that imagination. 
And we got to move out of the societal thinking that technologies are just individual projects. We have to begin to increase our understanding of the entire narrative of this third industrial revolution. And if you can do this in California and make California the lighthouse, it will spread across America. And I am convinced of this. Once America gets this story and puts itself to work, we can move this third industrial revolution as quickly as anyone in the world. It starts here. It begins now. Jeremy Rifkin is uh, the author of The Third Industrial Revolution, How Lateral Power is Transforming Energy, the Economy, and the World, and he's our guest here today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'd like to ask you one uh, brief question. Uh, you, you write about the dirty rich and the clean rich, and we have a political system where the dirty rich, people who made their money through fossil fuels, are holding sway, and how can the clean rich uh, have more influence in that system? How do you see that dynamic playing out? Well, I have a large, a pretty big section in the book about this. Obviously, we've got a problem here that in our country, the real exceptionalism of America is that we are the only industrial democracy in the world where we don't have public financing of elections. So the special interest, the corporate interest, they can pay off the candidates and they can, they can uh, run the show. In Europe, the same companies that are in America and Europe, they're at the table. But they don't have any more power than the, the governments, the regions, the civil society organizations, because they can't actually buy the elected officials. So what we need is an even playing field. But I would say this. Yeah, the energy companies have been very successful in putting, getting tens of billions of dollars in subsidies over all of the last century. And they're still getting it, even though their energies have matured and they're creating climate change. They get more subsidies than the renewables. What, we, but what they have learned, this is interesting, what, the second industrial revolution industries learned is you can't go it alone. And what they realized, they had to come together. They actually did conceptualize an entire infrastructure and started to come together, realizing they all had to move as one. So the auto companies, the oil companies, the construction companies, the companies that put in the cement for the interstate highways, the, the, uh, the real estate developers that did the suburbs across the exits on the, on the interstates, the rubber industry, they all, the travel industry, they all come together. And they create a very powerful lobby in the 20th century because they did understand how to connect the dots, even though it may have been for, you know, very self-interested purposes. We have a bigger elephant in the room now. The five-pillar infrastructure has a huge amount of industries. Renewable energy industries might be small, but pillar two, we have the construction industry and the real estate industry in our group. Pillar three... The storage industries are there. Pillar four, the big uh, uh, information companies and IT companies are ready to go. And pillar five, transport and logistics. What we haven't done is come together in a lobby, but it has to be a different type of lobby, not handing money out, but an educational lobby at the state houses, at the municipal houses, at the federal government, informing our elected officials of the tremendous economic opportunities in this development model to create millions of jobs and thousands of new businesses and to tell the story. But without financing the candidates and then giving them in return lucrative jobs after they leave. That's the old way of doing business. And let me say one last thing about it. What we realized, which is very interesting early on, is we didn't understand why some government leaders were for this plan with us and some weren't. And it defied 
party labels. Angela Merkel is a Christian Democrat center-right. She liked this model. Mr. Zapatero, who I advise, is a leading socialist in the Spanish government, prime minister. He liked it. Mayor Alamano in Rome is center-right, but he liked it. David Miliband in the U.K., who was in the Labor Party, didn't like it, but Cameron did. So we couldn't figure out why. And then we began to realize what's happening here. This shift in power relations is being reflected by a shift in political landscapes. Young kids who are 20, young adults, they don't think right-left. They actually don't think capitalism, socialism, ideology. That's the old school. It's not even on their radar screen. When they judge institutional behavior, it's based on, does this institution behave in a way that's centralized, top-down, patriarchal, closed, and proprietary? Or is this institutional behavior distributed, collaborative, open, and transparent? So I think that what we need to do is have a new lobby that's all of the of those, transparent, open, collaborative, and we have to begin to tell a story and move the technology. We're going to ask uh, the audience to come join us for a question. We're going to put a microphone out right here and invite you to, if you're on this side, if you could please go through that other door. And my colleague, Jane Ann, who's waving her hand, uh, will uh, be the line marker. So we invite you to go uh, line up for audience questions. And I'll just ask one more question while that starts to happen. Uh, Mr. Riskin, you cite IBM as a company that successfully navigated from the centralized to decentralized uh, paradigm. Are there energy companies that you think can make the the passage from the centralized paradigm to decentralized the way IBM did? Well, I think IBM didn't so much go from centralized to decentralized. It went from manufacturing physical computers to managing information. But now IBM, IBM's in my group, IBM now is looking at, it's right at the center of the distributed smart grid. So they, they and, and companies like uh, Cisco, John Chambers, and right. uh, Kima, and a lot of these companies, Siemens, are moving into this area and teaming up with startup companies and creating these networks. But how about fossil fuel companies? Will they be able to then uh, get into the rooftop solar business or the distributed power business? Well, I think it's going to be difficult for the energy companies. Uh, some will be a, uh, a little bit uh, quicker to the start. Many of them will not. But the power and utility companies, yes, because they're going to begin to see that they have more now at stake in connecting with these five pillars and being the energy Internet. And there's far more opportunities business-wise in connecting in with renewable energies and the construction and real estate industry and connecting in with IT and transport and logistics because they can create, uh, be parts of much more diverse lateral networks. So I think, yes, the power and utility companies will move to this model or they'll go out of business. There are plenty of startup companies now that are taking the place of the utility companies. They just started in Europe. They're just starting here. And they're aggregating uh, uh, folks that are producing their own energy, and they're helping them distribute the energy and getting it onto the grid so I think it's very disruptive. The utility companies may not make it. Some will, some won't. Others will come out. If you're just joining us, our guest today, Climate One of the Commonwealth Club, is Jeremy Rifkin, author of The Third Industrial Revolution. Let's have our first audience question. Yeah, my name is Nick Epley, and I make my living by selling rebates and uh, energy, mostly around lighting and commissioning and everything else. So PG&E seems to be very on top of this. But, it, but back to your last point of having to be a social you know, we're, in, we're the people that are interested in staying on the planet and not eliminating all the species. Or, no, I want to do it the same way. I want the old-fashioned way. I'm conservative. I listen to Rush, and he knows that the light bulbs are crazy, so I'm not going to do anything. 
and I don't care what my energy bill is because it's a small portion of my business and go away. And that seems to be that seems to be my problem, but it seems to be a portion of what everybody else is going through. The people that want to do it don't have a economic or a social impact to do it. Phillips is in our group. Rudy Provost is the CEO until this month of Phillips Lighting, and he's on our executive committee. He's just uh, moved to take over Rexall in Europe this month. But Rudy will come in on what's called a performance contract, and, and Phillips Lighting will come into a city, and they've done this, with their own banks. And they'll say to the city, for example, we won't sell light bulbs, but we will, as a service, put in LED lighting, which creates much more energy efficiency reduces the, the cost of the city, we'll do all your public lighting in the city, and we'll pay for it. You, the city, pay us back on the savings. No savings, we'll take the loss. What city would say no to that? And it reduces everybody's bill as consumers. I think that what the gentleman just raised, the issue here is we haven't, been, we haven't talked about this new vision. So now people see all these little projects that they think are wasting money across the country because it hasn't been connected into this third Industrial Revolution narrative. It seems to me that whether you're conservative or liberal, there are a lot of people out of work. There are a lot of small businesses that are going under. This is a practical plan that could be taken up in any community. And from day one, if communities started to move on this with public-private partnerships, day one, huge amounts of jobs and lots of business opportunities locally to lay down this infrastructure for 40 years, day one. So I think the, the real mission here is to tell the story, connect the dots, put the five pillars together, create public-private partnerships, because the old story is no story at all. So if it's the old story, the question you might ask is, how do you expect to regrow the economy, create any jobs and businesses in a dying energy era with old technologies and infrastructure that's shot? Let's have our next audience question. Hi, my name is Jacques Fossorier. In France, about 80% of electricity comes from nuclear power. Uh, electricity is relatively cheap. In fact, there's so much that we export it to countries around, and the infrastructure like railroad and so on, fast train, is based on the cheap electricity. How are you going to convince EDF and the power company really to follow that, that new line? EDF being the French major mm-hmm. utility. What I would... What I'd... Uh, I make a little prediction to you that France is about to explode into this new era because for so long the idea of nuclear power has been synonymous with the idea of French autonomy since Charles de Gaulle introduced nuclear power as a way to be independent. But nuclear power fits the centralized old political model. France is one of the very centralized countries in Europe and the world. All political power emanates from Paris and nuclear power epitomizes that centralized uh, ideology. But underneath the surface, there's a whole generation underneath the age of 40. They're ready to open the door on this. And I think you'll see this in the next national elections this spring. They're going to open the door. In terms of nuclear power, what's interesting is, from a business point of view, it's, it's, it's dead. Siemens just got out of nuclear power last week. I was in Germany when they made the announcement. They're out. All right? Nuclear power... Uh, it was dead in the 80s after Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, but it came back in the 90s on the coattails of climate change, saying at least we don't emit CO2, aren't we part of clean tech, shouldn't we part of the solution? Here's the problem. There are 400 nuclear power plants in the world. They're very old. They only make up 5% of the energy of the world. 
to have a minimum impact on climate change, according to our scientists, they'd have to be 20% of the energy mix to have a minimum impact, which is the whole rationale for bringing them back. That means we'd have to build 2,000 nuclear power plants, three a month, for the next 30 days, every 30 days for the next 40 years. Does anybody think that's going to happen? Number two, we don't know how to get rid of the nuclear waste. We spent 18 years building that little fail-safe vault in Yucca Mountain at $8 billion, and it's already leaking, so we can't use it. It was a failed exercise. Three, uranium deficits coming up. With the existing plants, we're going to pay more for uranium. Number four, we could recycle the uranium to plutonium like the French power plants want to do. Then we've got plutonium all over the world. Not a good idea. And number five, and this is what is just, the French people are just learning that this year. I did a few YouTubes and some press conferences, and, it, and the French people didn't know this. Forty percent of all the fresh water consumed in all of France each year goes to cooling nuclear reactors. And it's almost 50 now. And when the, heat, when the water comes back, it's heated. It's dehydrating ecosystems and affecting agriculture, which has already been affected and hit by climate drought. From a business point of view, I think it's over. Japan, it's over. Um, Italy, when Berlusconi wanted to push this, people came to the streets, and in a public referendum, 90% of the public said, no, it's over in Italy. Germany, after Fukushima, the chancellor said, we're done. They're pulling out all nuclear power plants offline by 2022. I think that's the future. Now, I mean, you can have ideological arguments, but I look at it from a business perspective. It's not a good business deal. And I can't imagine in 2050, three generations growing up on the Internet, very, very comfortable with distributed collaborative power lateral scale, surrounded by old-fashioned, top-down, clanky, centralized nuclear power plants. This is not going to happen. Let's have a next question for Jeremy Rifkin. Uh, my name's Clifton Lemon. I've worked in the green industry for the last six years or so. Um, I'm wondering why you're not talking about energy efficiency as a big part of your program, because uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's our first resort for a uh, source of energy and entirely compatible with the renewable uh, technology and smart grid like you're talking about. But I think that's the uh, lobby we need in Washington is for energy efficiency. So talk about that. Well, I mentioned it in my talk. Maybe I went over it too quickly, but we think that's the essential starting point. We agree. I spent a lot of time in the book on it. One of our policy team is Skip Leitner, who you may know, who's uh, probably the leading expert economist in the country on, on energy efficiency with the American Association for an Energy Efficient Economy. Uh, you have to start with energy efficiency. So when we do our master plans, we can't do the five pillars until we've laid down a program for energy efficiency. We have to make sure the buildings aren't leaking. We have to retrofit, retrofit them, retrofit them. We have to make sure that the buildings are tight and they lose very little energy, or else when we put in the five pillars, we're going to lose all of that possibility. So absolutely, efficiency is critical. Efficiency is the starting point. But it's not the end point, because if we're simply doing efficiency and remaining in fossil fuels and uranium and we're making them more efficient, that isn't going to allow us to handle the crisis of, 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 of peak on fossil fuels and climate change. We can get them more efficient. That's still not going to get us out of this bind of being in fossil fuels and climate change. So, yes, get them more efficient. I say that's the starting point. Then introduce the five pillars. And when we introduce the five pillars, as Skip Leitner has said, each of these pillars, when they act synergistically with the others, each one wildly increases the energy efficiencies. 
because you put in you first retrofit, then you put in the renewables, then your buildings are converting energy, they're more efficient because it's right there on site and not shipping it out. Then you put in your storage to make it more efficient, hydrogen. Then you put in the energy Internet so you can share it more efficiently across regions nodally. And then you plug it into transport that's more efficient. And when they synergistically interact, wow, big increase in energy efficiency. Thanks for raising it. We have a few uh, minutes left. Let's get a couple of quick questions and quick answers. Yes, sir, please. Uh, My name is Clifford Levine, and I apologize because not only is my name semi-redundant to the last gentleman, my question is also semi-redundant. Um, most people assume that the electrical generation is a single unit. It, it's generated and then it's taken down to the home or the factory. But, in fact, there's thousands of units and substations and mechanical devices, all of which are very inefficient. Uh, and according to IBM, the total electrical generation that goes through those units, up to 50 percent of that is just wasted. Yeah, because it's lost simply, I mean, for inefficiencies because of a lack of communication. Uh, I, and the ability of the... Um, the units to regulate each other, direct electricity to the right area. Uh, I wonder, I mean, based on our previous conversation, if you might be able to tell me what steps you think are being taken now and what steps might be taken uh, to eliminate that huge waste just right there. The first thing is to realize that this old uh, system is just falling apart. It, first of all, the transmission lines are servo-mechanical. So young uh, uh, graduates of the engineering schools who grew up on digital technology, they don't even recognize the system when they see it. It's servo-mechanical. It's a relic. It's a museum piece. It's 60 years old, and it leaks 20, 30 percent of the electricity before you ever get it, all right? So the, what we need to do is begin, we're going to have to mend the system and convert it. In Europe, it's going to cost a trillion euros to put in the juvenile infrastructure, about the same here, about a trillion plus dollars. We're going to spend that money anyway. The question is, are we going to spend it to mend up the old system or are we, going to, are we going to spend it to create the new system? And then when we create the new system, the question is, is that energy grid going to be a smart grid or an energy Internet? If it's simply smart and centralized so that the utility companies can get more information about what the end user is using and have more remote ways of controlling the, the, the technology, then it's, it's lost. But if it's an energy Internet where we're all plugged in, we have digital dials, we know the change in electricity price moment to moment in our home, we can come on and off the grid at will and collaborate across space. That's power to the people. So in Europe, we're moving toward a distributed grid, an energy Internet. In America, I have to say, President Obama's administration came up with a plan and with the Western governors to put in huge wind parks and solar parks in the Midwest and the Southwest and then put in a high-voltage centralized smart grid to ship all that electricity to eastern population centers. How many of you know this? Well, guess what happened? The New England governors and the Mid-Atlantic governors said, not on our watch, and they all came together and they said, wait a minute. You want to change, raise the electricity price for everyone in the country so the western states can do this and the rest of us have to buy it and we have to pay for the more electricity? So the eastern governors and Mid-Atlantic governors said, no, we're going to create our own energy here in this part of the country, we'll use it, and then we want to share it on a distributed grid. Shame on the Obama administration. The Internet president, but he's thinking centralized top-down, not distributed and lateral power. He can do better. And let me say, I think his heart's in the right place. He needs now to take a look at what's going on in Germany and Europe, and he needs to get a very quick um, lesson 
on how this new energy is unfolding and tell this story, or someone else will tell it. He also has an energy secretary that believes in the efficiencies of D.C. versus A.C., and there's lots of... Uh, let's have a next audience question, please. Hi. I'd like to hear your expectation um, on the timeline in which there will be more serious investment um, on a large scale in the United States in renewables, um, and particularly um, in big institutions and um, in consideration with the investment and movement towards um, natural gas. If the uh, When we take, took a look at how this has unfolded for the particular cities and regions where we've done master plans, we see a juvenile infrastructure in place in 20 years and a mature infrastructure in 40. Now, that's not a big stretch. The first Industrial Revolution took about the same time. We had a juvenile infrastructure in, in rail, steam, uh, print technology, uh, the infrastructure between 1840s, 1880s, and then we matured it by, by the turn of the century. Second Industrial Revolution, we had a juvenile infrastructure in place for the auto, uh, the pipelines, the storage, uh, the interstate highways, suburban rollout between 1900 and 1929. Then we had a hiatus during the Depression and War. Then we matured the infrastructure with the interstate highways and suburban uh, construction off the exits on those interstates between the late 50s and the late 80s. So this Third Industrial Revolution shouldn't take more than 40 years. But the minute you begin in a local community, day one, you create the jobs and you create the, the businesses, day one. It's not 10 years down the line because you have to convert the entire region. And then the nodes can become somewhat self-sufficient and be competitive because their energy margins are good. They're not relying on a global fossil fuel energy mix. And then they want to connect up to the next node and strengthen each other as they go. The key is it, re it requires planning at the state and local level. You have to have local government come together with local businesses and local civil society organizations and together phase in a master plan and begin to invest this. And you're going to invest locally no matter what. You're investing in bad times and good times in every community in the country. So the question is, do you invest in old energy technologies and infrastructures or new ones? If it's new ones, you've got to have a plan. And then you've got to work together across the three sectors, government, industry, and the civil side, to make it happen. Real quickly, yes, sir. Hi, my name is Tony Thayer. I just am reflecting on your comment about the sixth extinction event that you forecast. And I wonder if there's not a need for like a sixth pillar of, of your, your plan just to preserve more of the Earth's surface to generate O2 and fisheries and other what might be called environmental services that nature has always provided for the plan. The key now is survival of species. That means we have to make sure the ecosystems aren't so disrupted that, uh, especially with the hydrological cycle, that it's lost. Because the feedback loops are already starting, and it's terrifying us, the feedback loops. So the key thing now is we've got to mitigate climate change quickly and get off carbon really quickly. This plan can move very fast in the developing and developed world. We've got to really be off carbon by 2040, off. Not part of the mix, we got to be off carbon. And that way we will at least lessen the possibility of massive disruptions of the ecosystems and the hydrological cycle. That's, that's, that's job number one. Uh, in, in the book I talk about, and I mean this is, if you know a little bit of what our office has done over the years, we believe that it's, uh, it's not just human beings on the planet, it's our fellow creatures. They have a right to be here. With us or without us. They have a right to be here. 
It's their planet, too. As my wife says, our fellow creatures, they're fellow travelers. They have their own sojourn. But we travel together in one biosphere. They're our evolutionary relatives. So we have a responsibility not only for our species, but for all of our fellow species. We all live in this one indivisible biosphere. So any plan for a third industrial revolution includes that. The last chapter of the book is rethinking education so that we create an educational system based on not just distributed collaborative education, but biophilia, as E.O. Wilson would say. We have to rewild urban areas. We have to reintroduce young people to the rhythms of nature and the responsibilities to the habitats they live in. We have to make sure that our kids aren't just growing up in virtual worlds, that through their service learning and through their other experiences, they become reacquainted with their biophilia connections and become very aware of the relationships with what we call this teeming spirit, life. So it's essential. If it's just about technology and our young people do not have a new sense of commitment to life on this planet, then all is for naught. Yes, ma'am. Um, you've described a lot of things that have to happen in a very short period of time. Uh, and especially in Europe, we've been reading the papers. Things are not doing, uh, things are not that great. Can you talk more about the economics of getting all of this done in such a short period of time, especially with the growing economies like China and, and India? The key to moving this thing is feed-in tariffs. 51 countries have it. Only Ontario has a developed one in North America. Vermont just started. You need feed-in tariffs. That means slightly raise the electricity, infinitesimally small, but then that gives you a fund of money. So early adopters can start re-equipping their buildings as power plants. And then immediately jobs. Germany put in the feed-in tariffs, 250,000 jobs in a few years. And now those jobs equal the total of all other jobs in the entire energy industry of Germany, even though renewables were only 10% of the mix. That's how fast it goes. Feed-in tariffs gives you the incentives to move out the other five pillars, the other four pillars for renewables. You've got to start with pillar one, and you have to have that. It's really, really important. In Europe, it's a little bit of a different thing. I, uh, what I said to the chancellor uh, when we were together, publicly as well as privately, yes, there's going to be austerity, but we have to have a growth plan. Because if it's just austerity, there's a double bind. The financial markets say to a country like Greece, and George Papandreou is an old friend. I advised him for years. George is in trouble. Mr. Papandreou is in trouble there. And so the financial markets say, we want to see austerity. Cut, cut, cut. Then when they cut, the financial community says, aha, you don't have a growth plan. So we're still not going to give you the credit lines. So what I said in Germany is we have to have austerity. It has to be reasoned out. No one gets left behind. Quality of life, as I said earlier. But we have to have a growth plan, and Europe actually has a golden goose. 500 million consumers in the EU. And the largest GDP in the world, the EU, not the U.S. It's the largest economy in the world. We have another 500 million consumers in the partnership regions in the Mediterranean, North Africa. That's a billion people. Biggest potential consumer market in the world. The next plan for European integration is to integrate an internal market for a billion people. That means a third industrial revolution infrastructure across Europe. Everyone produces their own energy, shares it collaboratively across Europe, creates a seamless energy, electricity, communication, and transport grid, so a billion people are living sustainably in the largest continental market. The, e, the third industrial revolution favors continental markets because it likes to run across continents, like Wi-Fi. It favors continental political unions to regulate that are networked. 
The Asian Union is coming on strong with an Asian continental market. And now the African Union is creating, trying to create an African continental market with the same third industrial revolution infrastructure just starting. South America just started their, their South American Union two years ago. They're going to follow suit. In North America, it's not going to be NAFTA. That was old thinking. But what you're seeing, I just came back from Toronto and Kingston this week. We're seeing a de facto bottom-up uh, continental, intercontinental union starting. The eastern states have been working for the last 20 years with the eastern provinces in Canada. Same with the Midwest states and the Midwest provinces. And on the west coast here, California, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana are working with the Pacific provinces in Canada. And they're beginning to lay out infrastructure, uh, common education sharing, energy, electricity. And so you're seeing at the bottom this intercontinental market began to emerge based on the real needs of the people. So I think that we're beginning to see a shift to continentalization. That's the next stage of globalization, continental markets, but it requires continental responsibility. And one can't think in terms of narrow self-interest, but in terms of the interest of an entire continent. All of this, I will say, is a daunting task. I'm 66 years old. I'm not going to be here to see this. You young people have a mission, and that is you have to be very focused because if what I'm saying has any, makes any sense to you, your generation and your kids are really in trouble. But you have an amazing opportunity. But it's going to require complete focus, attention, no diversions for three generations to move this third industrial revolution, shift to biosphere consciousness, and create a new post-carbon era for the world. And anything can derail this. But I don't think there's a plan B. I don't think there's a choice to go back. So now the question is, how do we mobilize our best talents, tell the story, create the narrative, lay down the infrastructure, get the job done? We have to end it there. Our thanks to Jeremy Rifkin, who's a senior lecturer at the Wharton School of Business. For his comments here today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club, his new book is The Third Industrial Revolution, How Lateral Power is Transforming Energy, the Economy, and the World. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming. And Mr. Rifkin will be signing books outside in the lobby. We hope to see you again soon at Climate One. Thanks. Thank you, everybody. Thanks.